John 1.14 says, The Word became human and made his home among us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness. We have seen his glory, the glory of the Father's one and only Son. Our prayer is that you might see God's love and faithfulness as you listen to our Sunday morning message here at First Methodist Bryan. Amen. Y'all can have a seat. Our scripture reading for today is from the book of Nehemiah, chapter 10, verses 28 through 31. Hear the word of the Lord. The rest of the people, priests, Levites, gatekeepers, musicians, temple servants, and all who separated themselves from the neighboring peoples for the sake of the law of God, together with their wives and all their sons and daughters who were able to understand, all these now join with their fellow Israelites, the nobles, and bind themselves with a curse and an oath to follow the law of God given to them through Moses, the servant of God and to carefully obey all the commands and regulations and decrees of the Lord our God. We promise not to give our daughters in marriage to the peoples around us or take their daughters for our sons. When the neighboring people shall bring merchandise or to sell grain on the Sabbath, we will not buy any from them on the Sabbath or on any holy day. Every seventh year we will forgo working the lands and we will cancel all debts. The word of God for you and me, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Well, happy Father's Day to all the fathers out there, especially to me on my first Father's Day. Oh, 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 you're too kind. Oh, you're so kind to me. You're so generous to me. Oh, thank you so much. Uh, But happy Father's Day to all the fathers out there. My name is Pastor Jeremy Bass. I'm going to be with you all for the next month as Rick is starting his sabbatical today. And we're nearing the end of our Nehemiah series, and we've kind of gone in and out in this service about the Nehemiah series. And we're in the, the second half, the last end of the book of Nehemiah. And the book of Nehemiah is about rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem, the physical barrier protecting the people of Jerusalem from invaders on the outside. And we looked at how the, the walls got rebuilt pretty quickly in terms of the book. Uh, about halfway through the book, the walls are built, and then we got another six chapters left. And so what's going on after those last six chapters, after the task that Nehemiah has been raised up for is done, why is there six more chapters? And when I first came in here and preached about this, we talked about how God is not just focused on rebuilding how it looks on the outside. God is focused on rebuilding the people inside the walls as well. God is focused on rebuilding the community and how we can learn and extrapolate that to our church today. And we're continuing that idea of God rebuilding his people today by looking at how we need to rebuild by remembering our identity. We rebuild on our identity of who we are. And so what's going on here in this passage is this is essentially a covenant renewal service that the people are going through. If you've been in the Methodist church for any period of time, this is something that has a rich tradition in Methodism in our history. John Wesley, when he was living and preaching, he would every year lead uh, the Methodists in a covenant renewal service at the beginning of every year. And we usually, in the history of Methodism, for the first Sunday of the year, would do 
a covenant renewal service where we would recommit our lives to the Lord, where we would uh, recommit our loyalties to God. And that's what's going on here in Nehemiah. They are renewing their end of the covenant to God. And as we see here in the text, that covenant renewal, this idea of renewing the covenant with God, is essentially on our end a recommitment to holiness. A recommitment to holiness, a recommitment to being the people of God that he calls us to be. In this passage, I just read a few of the ways that the people say we will commit to be a holy people. The the rest of the chapter goes on to lay out different ways in which the people will be holy. But just to lift up the examples that I read today. It talks about how we will not marry our daughters off to foreigners, and we will not let our sons marry foreigners as well. And so kind of what's going on there, it's not this racial purity that somehow has been twisted by some people. This is about the religious purity of the community. Because marrying an outsider wasn't just marrying someone who wasn't an Israelite, it was about marrying someone who worshipped a different god than the Israelites. And what would happen throughout Israel's history, you just read the prophetic books, is that they would marry these foreigners and they would marry into their idolatry as well. That the idols would come and invade the household and the idols would come and they would worship these idols along with Yahweh. And so what they're recommitting their lives is we will not be a people who tolerate idolatry in our midst anymore. And then they recommit their lives to remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. The Sabbath day, the seventh day of creation that the Lord set apart and said, this will be a holy day, a day of rest, a day where there is no commerce, a day that is set apart. They recommit to uphold the Sabbath. They recommit to uphold the year of Jubilee, which in the law, every seven years what they would do is they would not work the fields And they would trust that Yahweh had given them enough provision to last the full year while the fields rested. They would cancel all debts and release the slaves. They said, we will do what the law tells us to do. It's essentially, it's just them going through these different commandments saying, we will become a holy, set-apart people once again. That holiness should be our identity as the people of God because as the choir just sang, we, our God is holy and we are his people and we should reflect his holiness as well. That if we want to rebuild on our identity as the people of God, that we need to understand that we are called to be a holy people. We are called to be a holy people. This is our identity as the people of God, to be holy, to be set apart as God is holy and set apart. But friends, I know that you know this, we get it wrong a lot, don't we? Thank goodness for grace, right? That God calls us to holiness and we get it wrong, but God is always there to welcome us back. And I believe that God is calling his church once more to a renewed sense of holiness. Not just our church, but I believe the American church at large and even globally. John Wesley in his day, uh, when he was was just an Anglican priest who lived in England in his day, and he looked out at at the country that he was living in, and he said, you know what, everyone in this country claims to be a Christian, 
But when I look out at the people, I don't see a lot of Christians. I see a lot of people who claim the title of a Christian, but they're not living the life that Christ calls us to live. That doesn't sound like us, does it? That doesn't sound like our country. That doesn't sound like our churches. That this is what I believe God is calling us to renew that sense of holiness in the church once more. I think that's why when you look at the American church, you're seeing all these celebrity pastors who have these massive platforms, who have this massive following, who is having their dark sin issues uncovered in the public eye because I think God is tired of people having platforms and living unholy lives. God is tired of an unauthentic witness to the world. And I think the judgment of God is falling upon the American church right now. And so as we look at what's happening in our culture, what's happening in our churches, that I believe that God desires us as the people of God for our witness to be authentic to who we are, to be an overflow of who we are, not just simply a mask that we put on on Sunday mornings. God is calling us to be his people, people who are set apart, people who have a witness of light to the darkness of the world around us. I think it's really uh, challenging in our faith tradition. The holiness tradition is what Methodism is a part of. Uh, Methodism has a history of diving into legalism very easily. And so that's something that I don't want y'all to hear today is to become better rule followers. Uh, When we talk about holy living and being a holy people, it's really easy in our tradition to have it become legalistic. And I say that from someone who struggles with perfectionism, struggles with being perfect. And when I mess up, I'm like, oh, I shouldn't have done that. And I'm very, very difficult and hard on ourselves, on myself. And it's really easy in our faith tradition to turn our pursuit of holiness, our pursuit of living into our identity, into a pursuit of striving to earn God's love and favor. That holiness should not be striving to earn God's love and favor. We already have it. Nothing could be further from the truth as the scriptures teach us. It's important to remember that as we talk about this idea of covenant renewal and renewing our identity as a holy people, covenant renewal is always, always, always in response to what God has done in our midst. It is always in response to God's initiation in our lives. Notice how this passage starts off. The covenant renewal service in Nehemiah starts off actually in chapter 9, verse 38. It says this, In view of all of this, in view of all of this, we are making a binding agreement putting it in writing, and our leaders, our Levites, and our priests are affixing their seals to this. Notice that first clause, in view of all of this. In other words, therefore. And chapter 9 is all about them remembering the story of God. Chapter 9 is all about them remembering the faithfulness of God to them. Chapter 9 is them recounting the great deeds of God. And they're saying, in view, God, of all that you have done for us, in view of all that you have done in our world, therefore, this is how we are going to live. That covenant is always God-initiated. That Yahweh is the faithful one to the covenant that he makes with his people. 
It starts with God who initiates relationship with us, and it ends with God who enables us by the power of his Holy Spirit to live holy lives. This starts with God and it ends with God. He is the faithful one of Israel, as the scriptures repeat over and over again. If you ever read in your Bibles, it might be a King James translation or an older English translation, you'll come across the term loving kindness. You ever see that in your Bibles when you're reading the Old Testament? Loving kindness. It's one of those Bible made-up words that we love to say in the church. You ever use that term loving kindness in your everyday life? Uh, A better way to translate that, it's the Hebrew word for hesed. It's It's the Hebrew word for the covenant faithfulness of God. That it's a better way to translate is that Yahweh is the one who is always faithful to the covenant. That the nature of God is described throughout the Old Testament is the one who keeps his promises. The one who is faithful to his people. And as we look here in Nehemiah, they are remembering the faithfulness of God in the covenant. And therefore they respond, Lord, we will be your people. Covenant is another one of those words that's like a Bible-ish term. It's what my Greek professor in college uh, said, that we have these Bible-ish terms that we use in the church that we never use in everyday life, and then we rarely explain. Covenant is one of those words. And I want to explain the meaning of a covenant to y'all here today. I'm going to use Genesis, the covenant that God makes with Abram in Genesis 15 to describe how God does covenants. Uh, looking at Genesis 15, chapter uh, 15, 6 through 11, it says this, Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. And then he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of the Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land and take possession of it. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? And so the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer, a goat and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abram brought to him these animals. He cut them in two and arranged the halves opposite of each other. The birds, though, he did not cut in half. Then the birds of the prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. Skipping down to verse 17. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking firepot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said to his and said to him to your descendants I will give this land from the wadi of Egypt to the great river the Euphrates we look at this idea of covenant it was actually a political term during the the days of the ancient near east the days that the bible was written it was a very common practice in those days and how it usually worked was it was a it was a contract essentially between two uh, entities. Usually what happened is you'd have like a, a king of a region and then you'd have like a lesser lord who wasn't as powerful as the king. And the king would come to the lord and would say, hey, let's enter into a covenant agreement with one another. And usually how that worked was the, the king would say, if you enter into a covenant with me, I promise to protect you. I promise to defend you. I promise to do all these things for you. And the the lesser Lord would usually say in return, well, in response, I will give you uh, this amount in tribute per year. That's how usually covenants worked in the ancient Near East. And so God takes this term that was very familiar to the people of those days and says, this is how I'm entering into relationship with my people, that I'm going to make a covenant with them. 
And this practice that's described here in Genesis 15, it's a very weird thing to do, isn't it? Take an animal, cut it in half, right? So it's this image of these animals are cut in half, and then there's this like pathway between the two carcasses. And how it would usually go is the, the lesser lord would walk between the carcasses and would say, if I break my end of the covenant, may what happens to these animals happen to me. Which is like, ugh, that's a little graphic, isn't it? But notice, did you notice the flip that God does instead? That Abram is not the one who passes through. God is. Look again at verse 17. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared, and it passed between the two pieces. That God is the one who says, over my dead body will I break this covenant with you. It's God who says, if I am unfaithful to you, may what happens to these animals happen to me. Because we, friends, we break that covenant over and over again, don't we? We sin, we fall short of the glory of God, and yet the God that we serve is the faithful one. The one who walks between the animals, the one who is unchanging, the one who promises to be faithful to us, the one who will be eternally faithful to us. This is the God who calls us to live holy lives. This is the God who calls us to respond to his divine action. And when we understand that God is the one who initiates all this, that God is the one who simply asks us to respond, that we don't have to strive to earn his favor, we don't have to strive to earn his love, I think it takes a lot of the pressure off. At least it does for me, because we can't out-sin God. As, scriptures, as Paul writes, uh, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. There's nothing we can do that God's grace can't overcome. And so our response is to be like the people of Nehemiah, to see what God has done in our midst and to simply respond and say yes to the Lord because he loves us and he cares for us and he is inviting us to deeper relationship to be the people that he is calling us to be. One of my favorite paintings is by Michelangelo. It's in the Sistine Chapel. Uh, I'm sure that you've seen it. It's probably one of the most famous paintings in the world. It's Michelangelo's The Creation of Adam. And I think he paints a real deep and profound theological truth here about the nature of relationship between God and humanity. As you see, God is sort of like leaning out from heaven, that he is stretching his finger as far as he possibly can to reach to Adam, that even it's like the angels are holding him so that way he doesn't tumble and fall out of heaven. You get this image of God straining and reaching as far as he can to get to Adam. And then notice the comparison to Adam. He's kind of leaned back. He's reclining. He's chill. His arms kind of limp. And even his fingers are kind of lumpy. He's like, yeah, God, if you get to me, that's fine, but I'm not going to go out of my way to reach you. And I think that Michelangelo is painting this truth about what the relationship with God is often like in our lives, that God is the one reaching out to us. God is the one coming towards us. And I think oftentimes we live our lives as if it's flipped. We think that God is passive, 
God is reclining up in heaven, waiting for us to strive and reach out, that God is the one who is limp, passive. But the reality is, is as it's painted in Michelangelo's painting, that God is the one who reaches out to us. God is the one who loves us first. God is the one who sends us Jesus. God is the one who sends us the power of his Holy Spirit. God is the one who awakens and enlivens us. This is all the divine action of God in our lives, that he is the one moving and working in our lives. And all he calls us to do is respond and say, yes, Lord, give me more. Yes, Lord, I want more of this. That is the better way to live As it says in 9.38 in Nehemiah, in view of all this, in view of all that you are doing, Lord, in view of all your moving and working in my life, I will respond by being your child. I will respond by living as you call me to live. I will go deeper into where you are calling me to go. I think that is the better way to live, to realize that our holiness is not striving to earn the love of God and the favor of God, but instead our holiness is a response of the love of God in our lives, that being holy people is simply a tangible way to love God. 1 John 4.19 was one of John Wesley's favorite verses. Uh, Y'all may memorize it. It's a great memorization verse. It says, uh, we love because he first loved us. 1 John 4.19. John Wesley said that this verse is the sum of Christianity in one sentence. We love because he first loved us. We have an identity in Christ because he gave us a new identity in him. That if we want to be the holy people of God, if we want to be who God is calling us to be, if we want to be the people that Jesus talks about in the Sermon on the Mount where he says, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. You are a city on a hill. You are the bright and shining star that others look to and say, I want to be like them because they reflect the beauty of God. If we want to be holy people like that, if we want to live deeper into our calling as people who dwell in Bryan, Texas, we need to understand that God deeply and profoundly loves us already. And that that is not something we have to strive to earn, that we are his people whom he rescued us from sin and darkness and death, that that is the gospel that we preach. And that our response is simply to say, Lord, make me more like you. As God desires to rebuild us as a church, as God desires to make us more like him, like they do here in Nehemiah, We need to start by remembering who we are, who God calls us to be, who God tells us that we are. We need to remember our identity in Christ as beloved sons and daughters of the King. We need to remember that we have been redeemed and that fundamentally we are loved by the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit above all else. That is our primary identity. That is our primary understanding of who we are. And we live deeper into that each and every single day. One of my favorite John Wesley quotes, I was reading a sermon of his, and it really unlocked for me this idea of holiness. He says this about what it means to be holy and how we can be a holy people. He says, But we must love God 
before we can be holy at all. This being the root of all holiness. Now we cannot love God until we know that he loves us. Do you get that logic that Wesley says that God calls us to be holy? But before we can be holy, we need to love God. But we can't love God until we know that he loves us. Friends, I don't know where you are in that stage. You could be, you know that you love God, but you know that he's calling you deeper into holiness. Maybe you don't know that God loves you and you're at that first step and that's okay. But friends, I want us to end up where God is calling us to be, which is his holy people. I want us to be different than the world around us. I want our witness to be vibrant and powerful. But first, we need to know how much God loves us. We cannot be holy. It cannot come out from a sense of striving. If we try to be holy from a sense of striving and doing more and doing all the right rules, then we will burn out so fast. Instead, we, we, be, we become holy like God is holy by leaning deeper into his love, by knowing that we are beloved by him and that we love him back and respond to him. We're going to close with the uh, Wesleyan Covenant Prayer in your bulletin. May not close. We're going to respond with the Wesleyan Covenant Prayer. Uh, I hated this prayer for the longest time, um, if you've ever prayed it. Because it, it says things that I don't really like, like put me to doing, put me to suffering. No thanks. Uh, let me be lifted up for you or laid low for you. It's like I like the first part, but not the second part. And so I never really liked praying it growing up in church until about a year ago. Uh, when it just kind of got unlocked for me as I was praying it one day, and I, I felt the Lord kind of reveal this to me, that the, the key to the Wesleyan Covenant prayer is that what I think Wesley is getting at here is he's saying, it doesn't matter what my external circumstances are. It doesn't matter if I'm suffering or doing great. It doesn't matter if I'm exalted or I'm laid low. I can do anything, Lord, as long as I have you. Because notice how it ends. I am yours and you are mine. Friends, would you stand with me as we say that prayer? We hope that you have encountered the risen Jesus today. If you want to hear more, please consider subscribing. We would also welcome you to join us in person. For more information, please visit us at fmcbryan.org.